Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde, recording from STAT's New York City Bureau. I'm Adam Feuerstein, and I'm coming to you from STAT's worldwide headquarters in Boston. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording with Adam in Boston. It's Thursday, October 11th, and here's what's on the docket this week. Celgene just disclosed that it shuttered a safety study testing a new kind of cancer immunotherapy. We'll talk about what that failure means for drug developers targeting a protein called CD47. We learned this week that a small biopharma company called Trevina misled investors about its dealings with the FDA. We'll discuss why this practice needs tighter oversight. Fertility medicine is a booming business, and Wall Street investor David Sable joins us to talk about what's happening and what's not in the in vitro fertilization space. And finally, we'll bring you another lightning round. We'll deliver hot takes on a new gender parity law in California, biotech's supposed bear market, and an IPO for CAR-T cancer therapy rock stars. But first, a word about Stat Plus. Enjoying the Read Out Loud? You can get more exclusive coverage from Adam, Rebecca, Damien, and others at Stat with a Stat Plus subscription. Stat Plus delivers daily, market-moving coverage of biotech, pharma, and the life sciences. By subscribing today, you'll get access to exclusive stories from our award-winning team every day. And as a special thanks to you, our podcast listener, subscribe to Stat Plus now and enjoy 10% off your first year by using the code POD, P-O-D. We hope you enjoy Stat Plus, and thanks for being a Read Out Loud listener. The dawn of immunotherapy in cancer has changed the lives of countless patients and made household names out of drugs like Keytruda and Opdivo. But those treatments don't work for every type of cancer. And that's why there's a gold rush among biopharma companies to find new ideas that might broaden the effect of immunotherapy and lead to blockbuster drugs. Unfortunately, those new ideas have mostly ended in disappointment. And that brings us to this week's news from Celgene. Right. So on Monday, Celgene quietly disclosed that it had terminated a phase one safety trial on a new cancer drug. And that might not seem like a very big deal, but Celgene's treatment was seen as a leader among a new class of immunotherapies. And the company's decision apparently resonated with investors because it erased hundreds of millions of dollars of value from a handful of startups working on similar treatments. So let's back up. How are these immunotherapies supposed to work? So the basic idea behind this class of drugs is to expose cancer cells to the body's natural defenses. And they do that by targeting a protein called CD47, which scientists refer to as a, quote, don't eat me signal. And basically, rank-and-file cells in your body use CD47 to go about their business without getting chewed up by the immune system, but certain types of cancer have evolved to exploit CD47 in order to survive in the body. So Damien, that sounds great, but does it work? So that's the interesting part, and it brings us back to Celgene. So CD47 has been fairly controversial among scientists. It works stunningly well in mice, but researchers have raised a lot of issues in recent years that have led many to doubt whether those results in mice are replicable in actual human beings. And that's why Celgene's decision to terminate a trial had such sweeping effect on stock prices. So Damien, what do the companies working on CD47 have to say about all of this? So Celgene didn't have a comment beyond saying that it would present data at a later date, but I asked two startups in the field, a company called 47 and a company called Trillium, and their response was interesting. They said basically that they weren't surprised at all by Celgene's decision. The people at 47 said they've already concluded that targeting CD47 alone is unlikely to generate the kind of effect on cancer that would lead to FDA approval, and that's why they're focusing on combining CD47 with some established cancer drugs. Wait, combination therapy? That idea sounds familiar. It does. And longtime fans of immunotherapy will remember the letters I, D, and O. About a year ago, IDO, or IDO, was the hot new target in the field. 
And interestingly, those IDO drugs never worked all that well on their own, but a bunch of companies and a whole lot of investors were convinced that if you combined an IDO drug with a drug like Keytruda, you'd make a real difference in cancer. And then, as you may recall, earlier this year, we learned that that idea spectacularly imploded in a phase three trial, and now IDO is viewed as something of a cautionary tale. So, Damien, is CD47 going to be the next IDO? It's still too early to say. There are a whole bunch of trials still underway, including one for that Celgene drug we mentioned before. And until we see more data, it's impossible to draw any broad conclusions. But I do think it's fair to say that the IDO saga has made the immunotherapy world a little more skeptical of each seemingly promising new idea. We're long overdue for an outrage segment. So here's one for this week. We're going to talk about the small biopharma Trevina and the way executives there misled investors for years about the company's dealings with the FDA. Yeah, Rebecca, you know, I've covered biotech for a long time. So, you know, call me jaded when it comes to biotech doing bad stuff. I've seen a lot over the years, but what Trevina did, and let's call it what it really is, the management team lied to investors, is really outrageous. I'm talking like people should be fired and the SEC should be crawling all over this company. That level of wrongdoing. So... <laughs> this Trevina debacle, it starts back in 2016, right? Yeah, that's right, Damien. So, so back in 2016, the company held a series of routine meetings with FDA officials to hammer out plans to conduct phase three clinical trials for an experimental intravenous painkiller that would be used by patients experiencing moderate to severe pain. And those meetings did not go well? Right. So the FDA had safety concerns about Trevina's uh, painkiller. Regulators disagreed with the company about its proposed dosing. The FDA didn't like the primary endpoint that Trevina wanted to use in the phase three studies. And they even disagreed on the statistical analysis plan. So essentially, Trevina went to the FDA and said, this is how we want to proceed with our phase three studies. And on almost every single point, the FDA said, no, we don't like that. Exactly, Damien. But Trevina ignored the FDA's advice. And then even worse, here's where the outrage meter really kicks to 11. The company told investors that its meeting with the FDA was a success. Wait, how did they spin the FDA's concerns into a success? This is truly unbelievable. On May 2nd, 2016, Trevina issued a press release announcing a successful, and that's a direct quote, end of phase two meeting with the FDA. The company's press release goes on to claim that FDA agreed to the design and conduct of the phase three clinical trial program. And for more than two years, investors were misled to believe that Trevina and the FDA were on the same page when it came to the clinical development of this new painkiller. But that was a lie. So why is Trevina back in the news now? Well, we, meaning investors and the public, just found out about this lie this week because Trevina's experimental painkiller is being reviewed by an FDA advisory committee today, actually, as we record this podcast. On Tuesday, the FDA made public its medical review of the efficacy and safety data of Trevina's painkiller. The review was scathingly negative. But on top of that, the FDA included a detailed timeline of its meetings with Trevina, in which all the disagreements about the conduct of the clinical trials were disclosed for the first time. And Adam, this is not a one-off episode, right? You've been complaining about this type of biotech misbehavior for a long time. Yeah, I have, Rebecca. You know, sadly, Trevina is not the first biotech company to mislead investors about its dealings with the FDA. You know, the FDA is legally prohibited from talking publicly about the outcome of meetings it has with pharma and biotech companies during the drug development process. 
But the companies are under no such restrictions. So what we, the public, get are these one-sided versions of these meetings. You, you know, you'll routinely see companies issue press releases that claim, quote-unquote, positive FDA meetings or that the FDA supports the development of a drug. And later on, you find out that these claims are exaggerated or, in Trevina's case, they're just misleading lies. This is why I've always cautioned investors to be really careful, even wary and skeptical of these statements made about FDA meetings. And I think we need a lot more transparency, including the public disclosure of meeting minutes. So what happens now with Trevina? Well, you know, I think there really needs to be a reckoning here. I mean, let's let's name names. Who's responsible for this? You know, until this week, actually, Trevina was run by CEO Maxine Gowan. Now, she was running the company when those 2016 meetings with the FDA were held. She was the CEO when the company issued that horribly misleading press release about a successful FDA meeting. And look, if I were the SEC, I'd be knocking on her door. And Gowan just resigned this week, right? Right. So she, well, she retired this week as part of kind of a normal, succession plan at the company. So now Trevina is being run by a new CEO, Carrie Bordow. Now, this does not absolve Bordow of sin because she was the chief operating officer of the company in 2016. So she also knew what was going on, but did nothing. So both Gowan and Bordow made millions of dollars in salary and other compensation during this time that investors were lied to. So what does the company have to say about all of this? I emailed the company to ask them for an explanation of why they never before disclosed these fundamentally important disagreements with the FDA. And the only response I got was a kind of a non-answer that the company believes in the efficacy and the safety of its painkiller. And what about Truvina's board of directors? Aren't they supposed to be the sort of independent watchdogs who look out for the interests of shareholders? That's a great question, Damien. You know, I want to know if the board knew what was going on or were they also misled by management? Adam Koppel is a well-known healthcare portfolio manager at Bain Capital here in Boston. He's also an independent director on Trevina's board. He actually sits on the audit committee of the company, which is supposed to monitor the company's dealings with the FDA, among other responsibilities. And I emailed Adam for an explanation. You know, did he know? Uh, if he didn't, is the board going to launch an independent investigation? And so far, I haven't gotten a response from him. And there's another angle here, right, which is FDA's responsibility. I know, Adam, you said the agency is under a gag order when it comes to talking publicly about these meetings with biopharma companies. But still, is there not more they can do? So yeah, Rebecca, I, I think there is. You know, I don't see the FDA as a helpless victim here. FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb has talked about making the drug review process more transparent, but there's been very little concrete follow through. You know, he needs to do more. I'm kind of disappointed in Gottlieb's disinterest in holding companies accountable and not doing enough to demand more transparency. He really needs to step up. For this next segment, we're going to talk about fertility medicine. The field is booming right now. Women are waiting longer and longer to have children. Same-sex couples looking to start families are increasingly turning to in vitro fertilization. IVF clinics are consolidating, and investors are pouring money into startups, pitching egg freezing and genetic testing and other services to young women. And there are few observers more qualified to weigh in on this business than David Sable. David previously spent years as an IVF doctor, and now he invests in biotech for a fund on Wall Street. And today, David joins us to talk about what's going on in the world of IVF. David, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, David, you just closed a new fund within your firm's special situations for institutional investors that invest in private companies in the IVF space. So tell us about your investment thesis. Yeah, I've been studying the IVF industry for uh, 20 plus years since being an IVF doctor. 
things changed very rapidly about three years ago. The movement of elective egg freezing from considered an experimental procedure to considered legitimate by the American Society of Reproductive Medicine. Most importantly, employers are now recognizing that offering IVF and egg freezing coverage to their employees is one of the best perks to offer to high cost of acquisition, high cost of retention employees. And underlying all of this is a, another industry that really hasn't even started to be developed, which is to use IVF as for what I call preventive gene therapy. In other words, fertile couples have no difficulty getting pregnant, use IVF to, in most cases, eliminate the risk of having babies with serious diseases. Problem is we're stuck with a relatively fixed infrastructure. There's between 475 and 500 IVF labs in the United States, and there's about 1,100 doctors that specialize it. So the need to develop techniques to leverage this fixed infrastructure and let it scale to meet the new demand uh, really kind of shouted out to me as a fund manager that this is a good time to be seeding new companies and uh, you know, matching the advances in science with matches in engineering. So, David, you've compared the IVF business to the computer and hotel industries. Can you spell out that analogy for us? <laughs> yes. Yeah, I said in IVF, we make way too many MacBook Pros and not enough Chromebooks. And we have too many suites at the Four Seasons and not enough single rooms at uh, Hilton's and Sheraton's. You know, the, our challenge within IVF is we're doing a beautiful job creating $20,000 IVF cycles for people that can write $20,000 checks serially. We need to do a lot better. And by better, I mean we need to be able to give individuals the same opportunity to have a healthy baby at a lower price point. Same way if we had just the four seasons, we want to give people the same chance to have a good night's sleep at a lower price point. And in the past, the argument against trying to do IVF more cheaply or more automated is that yeah, you'd, you'd have to settle for a lower probability of outcome. And in 2018, that's unacceptable. So I wanted to circle back on something you mentioned before, which is pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. And that's a procedure used to identify genetic defects in embryos in order to prevent diseases like cystic fibrosis, sickle cell anemia, or cancers caused by certain genetic mutations. Can you tell us why you see so much potential there for IVF? Absolutely. And this, this is actually my personal passion. Uh, cystic fibrosis is a wonderful example. If we do the, the IVF with PGD route, which I call preventive gene therapy, we can prevent all the pain, all the suffering, and in, you know, decrease the risk for future generations having the disease as well. From a pure economic standpoint, the numbers really speak for themselves. I don't want to pick on Vertex Pharmaceuticals, which is a wonderful company. Uh, they've had drugs that they've developed for cystic fibrosis that cost upwards of $300,000 per year per patient. Cross that against a $25,000 IVF cycle, preconceptually, parents will be having babies with you know, their, their own genes, except without the disease. They've never exposed themselves to those medical costs. And more importantly, your children will never have to suffer the disease. Now, cystic fibrosis is one example. Sickle cell anemia is another. In addition, you've got tens of thousands of people at risk for passing down uh, the BRCA gene for breast and ovarian cancer. And families that have these risk factors or have had a child that's affected should have the option of using preventive gene therapy. And this is something that really hasn't been developed within the IVF world yet. So David, we've talked a lot about the promise of IVF. 
On the flip side, do you see any hot technologies or ideas in the reproductive medicine field that are being overhyped or oversold? <laughs> you're, you're, you're hitting one of my hot button issues here. A couple of weeks ago, the Wall Street Journal ran an article about a uh, clinic in New York City that's doing IVF and advertising very, very aggressively to do IVF so you can choose your child's eye color. And to be honest, this kind of thing drives me crazy. As early as the 1990s, when we started doing IVF for disease prevention, we would talk with academics, ethicists, journalists, sometimes patients. Within two or three questions, it would always devolve to uh, genetic engineering, choosing the baby sex, choosing hair color, eye color, athletic ability, IQ, you know, things that, yes, the technology can be used for those reasons. The same way a frying pan can be used to hit somebody over the head. To us, these are such important tools to do really serious medical work, you know, curing disease, preventing disease, and easing suffering, that somehow the, the conversations always devolve into these kind of silly peripheral issues. You know, for people that have dedicated their lives to advancing the science, it's really maddening and really frightening. Similarly, probably one minute after the first headline about CRISPR and gene editing came out, the discussion started evolving around, oh, you know, should we do this for embryos? Just as if we can like fine-tune our, our offspring. Now, first of all, the technology has not evolved to that state, uh, nor is it likely at any time very rapidly. And secondly, if we were to prioritize where we're going to put our resources in reproductive medicine, you know, certainly helping people have children who can't, preventing miscarriage and preventing disease are, I'd say, much better places to triage our resources. David, thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you very much for having me. It is time, once again, for the lightning round. So, Rebecca, what brought you to Boston this week? Well, I'm a Yankee fan, so it definitely was not quality postseason baseball. Anyway, the main reason I was in town was because I was moderating a panel discussion on the path forward for women in science. And how did that go? It was good. It went great. Uh, we had panelists from the world of hospitals, academic science, and biotech. And for me, one of the most interesting parts of that discussion was about a new law that just passed in California mandating that public companies have at least one woman on their boards. I asked one of the panelists, Mersana Therapeutic CEO Anna Protopapas, what she thought about the new law. Here's what she had to say. I do think it's a good idea, and you know, it's something that has been implemented in a number of European countries for some time. There are not many women who have board experience, especially when it gets to public company board experience, and we need to work that much harder to identify the women who have all the other credentials and give them an opportunity to get on a board and get that public company board experience. And we just have to work harder at it. And this is a way to sort of formalize a desire to work harder at it. So in practice, what does this actually mean for California biotech companies? You know, it's interesting. It turns out that most public companies in California are already in compliance with the new law. They already have at least one woman on their boards. The ones that don't are not major companies. Bloomberg dug up a few that don't comply. Among them are Zencore, a drug development company, and Massimo Corporation, which makes patient monitoring products. And I think what'll be really interesting to watch is whether other states adopt similar legislation. 
You might have noticed a growing amount of distressed-looking traders on CNBC this week, and that's because the market is down. And what that means for us in particular is that biotech is down. And in fact, yesterday, one of the most watched biotech indexes slipped to negative for the year and is now underperforming the S&P 500. Yeah, Damien, I guess I have mixed feelings about this. I mean, you know, the volatility that we're seeing obviously is kind of part and parcel with the broader market sell-off. So it's not a surprise that biotech is kind of going down while the rest of the market is going down. I mean, I guess it's noteworthy that sort of gains for the year have been erased. And that's troubling, I guess. And do you think we've reached the bottom here or is there still further to fall? Oh, hold on. My crystal ball is fell off the table. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, look, I mean, who knows, right? Just a few months ago, you know, we were talking about, you know, money flowing into the sector and stocks at all time highs. And now we're seeing a sell off. So, you know, what the next few months hold? I mean, who, who knows? Next up, there's a big IPO this week, and that's from Allogene Therapeutics. Wait, there's a unicorn in my window. That's right. Allergene went public at a multi-billion dollar valuation, and the company is developing, quote unquote, off-the-shelf CAR-T therapies, which unlike the CAR-T therapies we know and love so well, which require taking a patient's cell and re-engineering them in a costly and lengthy process, these would come from donors and thus could be shipped off the shelf to anyone who needed them. And Damien, Allergene is founded by a couple of CAR-T rock stars, right? That's right. So the management team behind Kite Pharma, which famously sold to Gilead Pharmaceuticals for more than $12 billion, they're the ones who founded Allergene less than a year ago and have already taken the company to a multi-billion dollar public entity. And on Twitter, Andy Biotech asked how much of that $2.3 billion valuation is for management premium. You got to think a lot. Absolutely. I think part of the case of investing in Allergene is that these guys have some sort of special sauce that can get them to deliver similar returns for investors in the future. I think one of the interesting things, piggybacking on the discussion before about how the market is down right now, the fact that Allergene was able to get that multi-billion dollar valuation is arguably good news for biotech, especially when there are a few companies similarly in the unicorn category planning to go public this year and next year. So we'll see whether this holds out for them. And that does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. A big thank you to Hyacinth Empanado, who produced this week's episode. Matthew Orr is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And a reminder that we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like. You can send an email to readoutloud at statnews.com, and we read them and we appreciate them, so thank you. See you next week.